Hi, this is Steve Robbins, host of the Into Dumb Guy podcast and host of this podcast, Business Explained. Today, I'm going to be talking to Eric Barker. Eric is the author of the new book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. Eric's blog, by the same name, is also the only blog and newsletter that I listen to and read religiously. He takes science and the most leading-edge and cutting-edge scientific research and applies it to our daily lives in a way that makes it absolutely relevant and applicable. Welcome, Eric. It's great to be here, sir. Thank you. So reading your book, the first thing that it did was spear me through the heart and make me feel like a total failure because I was a valedictorian. (laughs) Now, why would that upset someone? Um, Karen Arnold did research at Boston College, and she looked at valedictorians. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, valedictorians, it's, it's held up as the thing that every mom wants their child to be. And but what the research showed is that while valedictorians do quite well, many go on to get graduate degrees and they do they do they make good livings. And by by all accounts, they have they have good lives. Um, they typically don't go on to be the people who change the world, shake up the system, or reach the very heights of success. Because what school does, what school rewards for the most part, is not um, you know uh, the highest tiers of success or revolutionaries. Uh, what school rewards generally is compliance, uh, compliance with rules. And so students who are really passionate about a subject you know, have to be generalists. They have to be forced to, if they are awesome at math, they're forced to also study history and English and these other things. And so the students who comply with the rules, play by the rules, they do quite well. The students who are focused on one individual passion uh, don't often become valedictorians. And yet, you know, life is much more likely to reward you for expertise in one particular field than for being a being a generalist. And school has very clear rules, whereas life does not have very clear rules. It has far more options and possibilities. So valedictorians tend to do very well, but they don't tend to reach the heights of success because they they typically comply with rules rather than than reinvent them or or bend them. Ah, so this sounds like a a recommendation that we all go out and reinvent and bend rules? Uh, not so much. I mean, you know, obviously the, 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 the lights need to stay on, the water needs to keep running, the world, the world needs both kinds of people. Uh, and, you know, I, I would not advocate that everybody go out and try and change the world because not only would the, would the world fall apart, but uh, also it's, there's issue of risk tolerance where, you know, some people are naturally more conscientious and naturally more compliant uh, and may have him probably have a lower risk tolerance, whereas other people have very high risk tolerance. So what you're going to see is, a, is, a, is for the people who, who don't, the non-valedictorians who, uh, who don't do well at complying with rules, you're going to see much more bimodal results where they were they probably reach the heights of success and they probably fall well below the the average and you know so the distinction becomes how are you playing the game you know are you are you playing for for to to are you trying to to break the bank at the casino or you know are you are you playing it safe are you are you trying to to win or are you trying to not lose and um, and if you are going to be one of those rule breakers, 
then obviously, yes, you will have a much greater chance of, of reaching the absolute top, but you're also going to have a chance of bigger chance of ending up on the bottom. <laughs> um, so I guess I should be happy that I was the valedictorian. And I, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned conscientiousness. You're familiar with the big five personality traits. Of course. And one of those five is conscientiousness. I took the big five. I scored 99th percentile in conscientiousness, which explained to me why I was always the person on the project team who took responsibility for making sure it all happened, uh, <laughs> which when you get recognized for your achievements is a good thing. And when people simply realize that they can dump all the work on you because you'll make sure it gets done, it doesn't necessarily work out so well. Uh, conscientiousness it, it, conscientiousness is, is a really fascinating uh, thing because uh, while the, the research on grit, you know, is still growing and still being confirmed, one, one thing that has been definitely noted by um, uh, Angel Duckworth, uh, who's kind of leading the charge at the University of Pennsylvania, is that, uh, is that grit is very strongly tied with conscientiousness. And conscientiousness is also correlated with a lot of very positive, very positive uh, things in life, you know, in terms of you know, doing well and accomplishing things, being consistent, being healthy, you know, it's conscientiousness is very powerful. Uh, on the flip side, uh, and of course, you know, there's a, there naturally is a social agenda to, to promote conscientiousness because we like people who show up on time and pay their taxes. Um, you know, but on the flip side, uh, there's also research showing that when conscientious people are unemployed, uh, they are vastly uh, more unhappy and vastly, you know, more um, have suffer, suffer far more uh, because, again, when those rules aren't in place, when that structure is not in place, uh, they suffer far more than people who are comfortable without structure. Well, I'll take this moment to greedily ask you for a bit of coaching because the business that I was working on for various reasons uh, – I won't say it has been shut down, but we're going undergoing a complete change of direction. And at the moment, there isn't structure and rules for me. So as someone who's high in conscientiousness, but who currently doesn't have the, this is the direction you're going in, and these are the boundaries around it, what would you recommend that I do? Because you know what? It is driving me absolutely nuts. I mean, there are, there are two things that you can do. You could take a, you could, you can take a short, the short-term perspective or the long-term perspective. The, the short-term perspective would, would be to, again, go with, your, go with your signature strength in terms of conscientiousness and create a plan for yourself and say, you know, I am going to create structure where there is none. I may have to revise it. I may have to change it as new information comes in. But, you know, I'm going to work with the data I have. I'm going to know where I'm at and I'm going to create a plan and it will, it will evolve uh, as it goes forward, uh, or or a longer term strategy, which is I'm going to uh, become a little more comfortable uh, with with chaos. And uh, and you, uh, if you look to uh, Adam Grant's uh, book Originals, uh, and a lot of the the work he did when he was uh, when he was talking about that book, he he started to teach himself to procrastinate. Uh, he's a very conscientious, very organized guy. And he realized that procrastination does have some kinds of, of value in terms of creativity and other areas. And he realized that allowing himself to procrastinate, to, to be a little less control focused, uh, was actually uh, had benefits uh, that, that always seeking immediate closure uh, and checking that box. Uh, while efficient is is not always uh, you know is not always optimal in terms of in terms of quality and, and results. 
So you could either say I'm going to make a plan, or you could say I'm I'm going to ease up and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to see where this rolls and become a little more comfortable with a less controlled environment. <clears throat> wow, that's a um, that sounds like a call to step up and actually engage in taking control of my own life. <laughs> but here's the question: How do I know what direction to set? I mean, that's the kind of thing where uh, in the book. You know, I talk a little bit about having a personal definition uh, of of success, because in the modern era, when we go to TV, when we go to the Internet, we're we're seeing we're seeing the the, the number one or two achievers in a sample set of uh, seven billion, uh, which creates very unrealistic expectations. Uh, and now with the work environment allowing us to go 24 seven, if we so so choose, um, it's just that is what's created the disaster known as work life balance. So in the end, it really depends on your goals. If you're if you're saying, "Hey, I, I like I like the way I've handled things thus far," certainly there are always challenges. Then then yeah, it's like okay, make a plan and evolve it as it goes. If you say, you know what, I do think I have a little bit to learn. I I do think that you know I, I would be better off being being not scoring in the in the top percentile or two of conscientiousness, and I, I could gain a little. Uh, then, then you might want to go that. It depends upon your personal goals for the future. Interesting. What if I don't have personal goals for the future, other than I want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? I mean, what if they're what if they're vague? Uh, then I would I would encourage you to crystallize them. Again, uh, they can they can change. They can they can evolve. But usually, uh, usually I find when people don't have clear goals, um, it's it's not the result of you know. It's not the result of, oh, I think that's the best path. It's usually the, the, the result of I haven't really sat down and, and thought about it. Because like I said, being able to revise it is, is fine. But knowing that next step is, is really critical. That feeling of control you know, is important, even if illusory. Um, you, you see a lot of, result, of research when I interviewed uh, Alex Korb, who's a neuroscientist at UCLA. He said that you know, when, when the brain feels out of control, basically, you know, dominance shifts to the amygdala, the center of emotions and fear and away from the prefrontal cortex. When we make decisions, when we have a plan, when we feel in control, then things, the center shifts back to the prefrontal cortex where we're making decisions, uh, we're, we're active and we feel like we're engaged and it's a much more thought oriented process than a frightening emotional process by the, by the same token. Uh, I interviewed a Navy bomb disposal expert about keeping calm under pressure. And he said the critical thing was being able to know what's next. What do I have to do next? When he didn't know what was next, that's when the fear crept in. That's when things got dangerous. When he knew what was next, made the decision, proceeded forward, he would have to occasionally revise his plans. But when he knew what was next, he was able to maintain control, even in a profoundly lethal situation. So... If the thing that's going to make me feel good is the feeling of control, does that actually have to be founded in reality, or can I just basically engage in constructive denial? Um, you could, but once again, you're you know it's uh, what's what's interesting is you know is when they when they do the research, you know, a feeling of control is what is critical. Much like in relationships. You know, you see so much research in terms of uh, similarity and feeling of similarity. Well, we can never really know anyone else's mind. So what the relationship research really shows is it's the feeling of similarity. <laughs> Other people may look at a couple and say, those two are nothing alike. 
But if they feel similar, they feel close. And in the same way, if you feel in control, you know, you, there are plenty of times where you might think you have control and you don't, but it's the feeling of control. Now, can you effectively fool yourself if you know you don't have control? Uh, I'm not sure. The only thing I can point to in terms of that uh, or is, is basically, if you, if you look, uh, the placebo effect still works to a degree when we know it's a placebo. So, you know, hey, good luck charms uh, through, through the method of, of confidence, uh, good luck charms do work. Uh, they do improve confidence, so they make people feel better, and therefore they make people perform better. So you may be able to engage in a level of uh, constructive denial. Or just by hearing me say this, you might say, oh, Eric said I can do this, or the research said I can do this, so I'm going to give it a shot. And now I have a reason to believe it'll work. So that in itself might might provide a benefit via the placebo effect. Oh, excellent. You just managed to shift the entire credit for all of the rabbit's feet that I'm going to buy to yourself. Very well done. Um, and and it's, it's, it's not only well done in terms of the impression that you're making on me, but presumably in terms of the impression you make on yourself, because now you can get credit for everything, which increases your confidence. Um, it's a win. It's a win-win. I'm into that. Now, in order to, to, to deeply win-win, um, it seems like one of the things you said before is the ability to bring your strengths to a situation is really important. Uh, and in the book, you talk about knowing thyself. And whenever I've heard people say, you know, you really have to know yourself, because a lot of the leadership literature talks about that, that know, your, know what you're about. I've always wrestled with along what dimensions. I know that I'm five foot six and a half, and that half is very important because I used to just be five six. I'm I'm five foot six and a half, and I've never figured out how to use that knowledge for anything constructive other than buying clothes. So when you say know thyself, what what should I be knowing, and how should I be applying it? Uh, well, for there, I would immediately point to uh, the work of Peter Drucker, the great management management guru. Uh, where you know he talked about the issue of signature strengths, knowing knowing what you are good at, and he said that one can determine that pretty well by what he called feedback analysis, which is basically what do you do that delivers consistent positive results? And so if you sit down, if 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 you watch if you watch football every Sunday and you are always able to predict which team is going to win, hey, you know you might have a future as a bookie. And, uh, you know, and if you and if you always try, you know, something else and consistently fail, eh, that's probably not your strength. So so basically, you know, he recommends, a, you know, a much more detailed method of actually making predictions and then over time seeing how they work out. But, you know, where do you have those valuable predictive strengths where consistently if I say I'm going to do this, I do it. And I do it to a very high level. Uh, another method for that, which Adam Grant recommends is uh, is doing an informal survey of your friends where uh, they can give you sometimes a far more objective vision of who you are and what you're good at uh, than you might be able to do. So really, when I talk about knowing thyself, you know, I'm, I'm not talking in a in a fuzzy uh, sort of uh, magical thinking uh, type way. I'm talking about, you know, the, the things you are good at, the skills you have. You know, what, where are you able to consistently produce results? And that's the kind of thing, because the, the research shows that, you know, passions are great, but passions don't necessarily uh, produce uh, success or happiness. Whereas skills, when we are good at things, we come to love the things we are good at. We, we don't necessarily bec become good at the things we love. 
Interesting. I will keep that in mind next time I go in for my singing lesson. <clears throat> the the chapter after the know, know Thyself, you also talk about meaning and about the power that meaning has. And you said that one of the things that I found non-intuitive about meaning is that finding meaning only requires that we think that we know ourselves. Can you talk a little bit more about meaning and how that relates to the whole knowing ourselves thing? I mean, you know, meaning is, you know, meaning is, is really powerful because it's, it's, it's quite, we, we often conflate it with happiness and meaning and happiness. There's been a lot of research in this. They overlap in a, in a Venn diagram way, but they're, they're not always the same thing. And, you know, meaning is, you know, what, what do you find valuable, but not necessarily uh, makes you happy. When you look at people who live happy lives, they're much more inclined to be takers. They're much more inclined to be to be somewhat selfish um, because, hey, if I take more, I enjoy more and, you know, life is good in the immediate. Whereas people who live meaningful lives uh, usually uh, are more givers. They're doing more for others. And in the short term, that can cause that can cause pain. Uh, but also, if you look at uh, some of the work by Roy Baumeister, you find that in the long term, uh, meaning is more likely to also lead to happiness Then the path of happiness is to necessarily lead to meaning. So it's really about understanding what's what's important to you and what is what usually ends up being critical uh, is something bigger than yourself is once again, avoiding the potential selfishness trap of of happiness and basically telling yourself a story because stories are basically the operating system of, of the human mind telling a, a story about yourself that is aligned with that meaning that moves you in that direction where, where our self, uh, your self is malleable. I mean, you're, you're from a Buddhist perspective, uh, the arguable, you have no true self, uh, but the self is malleable. It's how you define it. It's how you see yourself. And that is also one of the things that is most likely to produce grit and resilience is when you see yourself as the kind of person who consistently achieves, who does something then it tells you you can keep going. Things don't seem futile because you are that kind of person uh, versus seeing yourself in a different light. You may, might be more inclined to quit because you, you don't believe that's who you are. Now, when you say seeing yourself as a kind of person, the first place that my mind goes is that old, old adage that my grandmother used to say, which is always be yourself unless you can be Batman, then always be Batman. Yeah. So is that who I should see myself as, as Batman? Um, well, it's interesting. I do talk. There is there is scientific research uh, on Batman, which I which I cover in the book. Where, you know, what's interesting is that uh, is that Batman can can never fail. Uh, Batman is not invulnerable. He luckily he's a billionaire and has some awesome gadgets, uh, and he has obviously incredible training in martial arts, etc. Uh, but Batman can never lose a fight because uh, he would he would die. Um, so basically being Batman being, means being perfect and none of us can be, can be perfect. And when E. Paul Zare studied, uh, roughly comparable, uh, people. So he looked at, uh, mixed martial arts champions, uh, NFL quarterbacks. So people who were taking a lot of physical punishment, uh, how long could they be at the top of their game, be perfect like Batman and not, and not lose or not suffer a, a crippling injury? Uh, and the result was three years. So basically, uh, if you were at your absolute best, uh, you could only stay Batman for, for three years. So none of us can be perfect. Seeking to be perfect uh, isn't, isn't you know, reasonable or rational or possible. 
Um, so that also leads us into the issue of self-compassion, where we focus on forgiving ourselves rather than, you know, the extremes of self-confidence, uh, where we believe we're something, you know, just impossibly great, and then we fail, and it craters our self-esteem, to realize you can't be perfect, to be realistic, to see yourself realistically, to know what your strengths are, and to forgive yourself when you fail. This is a much more realistic, long-term perspective towards success. So it sounds like it sounds like I should have a story to tell myself about myself that's aligned with meaning, and it can even be a superhero story, but have it be a realistic superhero. Absolutely. I mean, you know, to be able to, I mean, superheroes are superheroes. Uh, you know, those, those stories are exciting because they are extreme, because they are unrealistic. Uh, but unless you are bitten by a radioactive spider, you know, I wouldn't really recommend, uh, you know, taking uh, this this extreme view that you you have superpowers or you have super abilities, because that's one of the key problems with confidence is that confidence can lead to delusion. And once it leads to delusion, you either two th one of two things happens, and that is either you get completely cut off from reality and you start sounding a lot like Buzz Lightyear. Uh, or you uh, or you meet reality head on. And in my experience, uh, reality tends to win. And so uh, it craters your self-esteem and then you you don't know who you are anymore. So it, it, it much it's a much greater attitude to be realistic, to understand where you perform, how well you perform and to forgive yourself when you when you fail and to be able to keep moving forward. Well, to be perfectly honest, I've always said that I would trade all of the hard work and skill and intelligence I have for the right amount of luck, because I was not I was not bitten by a radioactive spider. I was bitten by a Toronto raccoon, <laughs> and luck has always seemed to me, from from my experience, uh, to in many many cases be much more of a determining factor than non-luck. And apparently, according to your book, it's possible for me to become more lucky. And boy, does that sound like an awesomely good thing to do. How do I do that? Well, it's interesting because they're, they're uh, again, I think when, when uh, people, people sort of conflate two ideas when they're talking about luck, there is luck in terms of randomness and happenstance. Uh, where, you know, or, or that's, that's sort of magical thinking. And of course, no, we, we can't control that. But when, what we can control is, are we putting ourselves in situations where, where those good possibilities can occur? Uh, if I was to tell you to lock yourself in the house to not check email or, or pick up the phone, uh, you know, how many lucky things are going to happen to you? Probably not many. And so in terms of good, positive, uh, unexpected events happening to you, so that, using that as a definition of luck, you see that by increasing certain behaviors, you can increase the chance of luck. So when Richard Wiseman, uh, was a professor in, in the UK, uh, did research, he saw that people who were extroverted were more lucky simply because, again, they're out there talking to people, they're hearing about new opportunities, they're hearing about new possibilities. People who are open to new experiences uh, were much more likely to be lucky. And that that seems to make intuitive sense, that if you're trying new things, you're more likely to stumble upon new opportunities, new possibilities. Uh, people who were more optimistic, who, who tried things, who really gave it their all as opposed to quitting after the first chance. Uh, all of these kinds of things allow you to be exposed to, to new opportunities, new possibilities, and so therefore they make you luckier. You just mentioned something about 
about trying new things, <clears throat> a, a tension that I think a lot of people feel, and by a lot of people, I mean at least me, and I'm just projecting on the rest of the human race, is that I, when I try something new, I, by almost by definition at the start of it, I'm not very good at it. And I work at it and I work at it or I play at it, depending on what the thing is. And, you know, I get better or I get worse or I get the results I want or I don't. <clears throat> For example, I started taking voice lessons a few years ago and performing in musical theater, and I am, while it is clear I am getting better, it is also clear that that there are 19-year-olds living in New York on Broadway who are going to be able to outsing me for at least the next, the next 20 years, at which point I'm going to be too old to perform on Broadway anyway. So um, at some point, I need to decide when it's when I've done enough and when it's time to move on. And you have a really interesting way of deciding when when to quit and when to to grit and persevere. Can you talk about that? Because that's a fascinating question. Yeah, the the uh, research, and I'm going to butcher her name, uh, Gabriel uh, Ettingen. Oh, Ettingen. I'm 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 not sure, but she showed that uh, this great little acronym WHOOP um, is is a fantastic way for determining whether it's a uh, it's the time to show grit or to quit. And, um, and the first, the first step is the easy step. We all do it. Uh, the W which is wish. But the problem is that most of us often stop there. We, we wish for something and the way our, our little brains are designed is that, uh, we're not great at telling the difference between, uh, the real and the fake. That's why movies are exciting. Uh, so when we wish for something, it doesn't increase our motivation. It actually saps our motivation because our brain is led to believe that we, we already have it. So that's why we have three other letters here. So whoop, uh, the first thing is to wish. Uh, the next thing is to be more concrete in terms of the outcome. So outcome, what, what do you want to achieve from this? Crystallizing that allows it to become not so much a wish, but a specific achievable goal. The third thing, and this is where this is really critical, is to look at the obstacle. What, what's in the way? What is the thing you will have to overcome in order to move forward and achieve this goal? And the fourth thing is to, to have a plan. And what's great about this is it's, it's wonderful in terms of moving from a wish to something you can actually do and maybe achieve. But a secondary effect that is extremely powerful and, and really fascinating is that uh, she found when she did the research that people's feelings after doing the whoop exercise were very telling. If someone did the whoop exercise and felt energized, then that was generally the kind of thing that they should really move forward with, apply grit and, and try, to, try to achieve. If people felt down, if they, thought, if they saw their wish, they looked at the outcome they wanted, they saw the obstacle seem big or insurmountable, the plan seemed unrealistic, and they seem down or, or unmotivated, then that was more likely than not something that they should quit or at least try and reframe uh, that wish, that goal, that desire. So it becomes actually a litmus test for determining where to apply grit or quit. To use whoop, a uh, wish, outcome, obstacle plan, that can help people decide when to, when to grit or when to quit. Wow, because I read that book, and it's one of my favorite books, and I've always used it as a way to motivate myself. It never even occurred to me that that little side effect that she mentioned is so powerful. How can people find out more about the whoop technique? Uh, her, her book, uh, Rethinking Positive Thinking, uh, is, is very good, worth looking at. 
Uh, also, if you uh, Google Whoop, uh, there's an, uh, a free app for uh, the iPhone or Android that actually walks you through the steps in a very easy and simple way. And people can, people can do that to, to be walked through the process. And, you know, without, uh, with, with, without, uh, uh, trying to be too, um, unobjective here, there's, I've also heard there's this recent book that came out that in one of the chapters, it talks about whoop and it actually, you know, gives an example and so on. It's, I think, called Barking Up the Something. It's, uh... <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, very cool. Um, so so one more thing here, which is, and this is, this is something that kind of bothers me, because we've talked about about finding meaning by creating a story in which which links to your meaning and being a superhero but not being too perfect, etc. One of the core pieces of of some people's identity, and and again, by some people I mean mine, uh, is I'm a nice guy. And as much as I try to be an evil, megalomaniacal, you know, zombie dictator, it just doesn't work. I kind of fail on every one of those dimensions. I'm just a nice guy. And I read your chapter on nice guys, and it sounded an awful lot like what I really should be doing is being a jerk and like trying to hoard the entire world's supply of Oreo ice cream cake and hold it ransom and and so on. What what do you recommend? Nice guy, jerk, somewhere in between? Why and why? The the that comes back to, to Adam Grant's research on on givers, matchers, and takers, uh, giving givers being people who altruistically uh, you know, give to others and don't expect anything back. Matchers are people who have a very strong instinct towards uh, towards fairness, and so they uh, they look for an even balance of give and take, and then takers who try to get as much as they can uh, without reciprocating. And uh, when Adam first looked at the data, what he saw was that uh, the the you know <laughs> relating to the idea of nice guys finish last, he found a disproportionate number of givers were found at the bottom of success metrics in a number of careers. Which was very distressing because Adam is is quite the giver and quite a nice guy himself. But when he did a further review of the data, what he found was the results were bimodal. Was that givers were disproportionately found at the bottom. They were also disproportionately found at the top, uh, meaning that you saw givers either being very successful or very unsuccessful. And and this also, I believe, makes intuitive sense because we all know givers who uh, who end up as martyrs, who get exploited or taken advantage of. But we all also know givers who everyone loves, everyone feels indebted to, and who, who gain huge networks and the, the assistance of many people who, uh, who respect and love them for, for all that they do. Um, in terms of nice guys and uh, not so nice guys, uh, what you often see is the, is the dimension usually has to do with time. And that is in the short term, uh, you know, being a jerk can, be, can, be, can work out really well. Uh, you know, being focused on yourself, uh, trying to get as much as you can. Uh, when you look at many of the experiments that Robert Axelrod did with the prisoner's dilemma, you know, in the short term, uh, you know, being greedy and selfish uh, works out well. But over the longer term, uh, being a giver, now not a martyr, but being a, being a giver, starting out, you know, helping others, offering to, to others, uh, does quite well. As long as you're in a situation, as long as you're not a martyr, um, and as long as you surround yourself to as best you can uh, with other givers or with matchers, because matchers believing in a fair balance of give and take often protect givers from takers, um, that they do quite well. Uh, because even in a even in a place that's rife with takers, if a small amount of givers, this is Robert Axelrod's research, a small amount of of nice people, if they connect with one another, 
uh, can create enormous value by, by helping each other and by the protection of matchers can, can thrive. But when givers are disconnected, uh, when they're, when they're in, in the extreme minority, uh, they do get taken advantage of, they don't do well. But what you see is that over the longer haul, we all develop reputations, unless we're constantly dealing with new people. Over the longer haul, uh, you know, being a, a giver who is not a martyr, those people do, do succeed. So one of the recommendations I, I give uh, that David DeSteno of Boston University recommends is extending the shadow of the future. And that is by building more steps into a contract, by doing everything to try and lengthen the amount of time, the amount of, of continuous dealings, as they talk about in economics research. By having continuous dealings, now people are less likely to screw you over because they know you're going to have a chance to, to retaliate. They know that this is going to have to go on. They're going to want to be on their best behavior. Uh, so there are things uh, nice guys can do to, to do better in the short term. And uh, over the longer term, uh, nice guys can do quite well. Cool. And now the question that everyone has been waiting for. This is a, a question that has been around since time immemorial. And in reading your book, I was quite shocked and amazed that you have an answer to this question, even though you didn't phrase it or didn't frame it quite like this. But I would love to know your answer to this question and the rationale behind it. And the question is, pirates or ninjas? <laughs> um. I don't. I don't get too much into the into the uh, into the ninjas, but uh, there's a significant amount of work uh, research uh, actually on pirates. And what you find is that uh, pirates uh, were actually uh, you know a pretty a pretty economically viable uh, and a a pretty trustworthy system. Yes, they were they were they were uh, they were doing crime. But actually, the uh, the mercantile ships, the in the British Navy, uh, were pretty despotic. So anyone who didn't want to comply with that, or even be forced into it, became a pirate. And you know, pirates had to do what worked. And so, unless they were in the midst of battle, uh, the 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 head of the pirates, uh, the captain, uh, was not you know a a despotic ruler. He could be he could be unseated at any time. He was actually much more of a servant leader than anything else. He didn't get. You know, too much uh, more than anyone than anyone else got. Uh, you know, pirates uh, had uh, had uh, compensation uh, if they were injured in battle. They were rewarded uh, if they did a good job. Uh, they were they were far more uh, far more racially balanced because they they wanted good people and they weren't concerned with uh, the race. And this was this was you know. Uh, uh, I believe more than a hundred years before the United States even even um, even ended slavery. Uh, so you know, pirates uh, were very trustworthy. Now, granted, they they were doing some bad things, but they weren't nearly as bloodthirsty as we thought. That was a that was a big issue of marketing, because it, uh, if you had the reputation for being bloodthirsty, then you didn't have to engage in many fights. Uh, many people would just would just hand the loot over. Uh, so what you find is that is that pirate life was actually uh, was actually pretty acceptable. And, and what I'm talking about in the book when I get to that is the issue of trust and the issue of that, even in the most extreme examples of pirates, of prison gangs, uh, trust is critical because even if you have an organization of untrustworthy people, you still need trust in order to function as a group. And so that's something that can never be overlooked, uh, even even when the, the people in question are, are untrustworthy. Cool. So what you're saying then is, is we probably want to be givers, but not martyrs. And we want to be pirates. And 
be trustworthy. Uh, and just for yourself, would you rather be a, pi- a pirate or a Walmart greeter? I, I, I think I would much rather be a be a pirate. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm. I, I, I think uh, much, much again, again talking about uh, large despotic institutions. Uh, whether that was the British Navy at the time or, or perhaps even Walmart, um, I think I'd be better off as a pirate. All right. And you know what? That's that was kind of my feeling, too. I used to be I used to be really into the whole ninja thing. And after after I read your book, I'm like, wow, I would have made a great pirate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, as it is, I'm a podcaster. But, you know, it, uh, they both begin with the letter P. Uh, That's all. So uh, we're pretty much out of time. How can people find you and your book and your awesome newsletter and all that great stuff? Um, my, the URL for my blog is a little difficult to spell. So if people just Google uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog or if they Google my name, Eric Barker, it'll come up. The book's on Amazon.com and uh, other, other retailers. And the best way to, uh, to, to hear the latest, latest uh, research I'm polling and stuff I'm looking at uh, is to sign up for my email newsletter, which, uh, again, is uh, if they just Google Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog, um, they'll be able to sign up for the newsletter and keep up to date. Excellent. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Sure thing. You've been listening to Stever Robbins interviewing Eric Barker. You can find Stever on the web at steverrobbins.com, S-T-E-V-E-R-R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com. And you can find Eric on the web at Bacadus, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, bacadesuyo.com, B-A-K-A-D-E-S-U-Y-O.com. That's bacadesuyo.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>